speaking to Mr. Jay Segal, the Executive Vice President and former Managing Trustee and Executive Director of the Segal Foundation, and Mr. Lalith Mohan Sharma, the Principal Water Scientist for Water Research and Training at the Segal Foundation. The Segal Foundation employs a community-based approach that emphasizes empowerment and accountability in order to serve rural communities, particularly in India. Their mission is to strengthen community-led development initiatives to achieve positive social, economic, and environmental change across rural India. And in doing so, they have reached over 3.6 million people. Please welcome Mr. Jay Segal and Mr. Lalith Mohan Sharma, who will be speaking about how the Segal Foundation has worked towards tackling the world water crisis, and specifically how they leverage technology in order to create comprehensive water management systems in various regions within India. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you and just gaining insight into what goes on within the Segal Foundation and the various perspectives that are also required to create all these different solutions. Um, but before we get started, I'd love for you to introduce yourselves. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Karina. I'll start out. And uh, as uh, you mentioned, I'm the executive vice president here in the U.S. Uh, and I represent the Segal Foundation. And I'm also a trustee of the SM Segal Foundation in India. And uh, I have been um, uh, learning, I would say, uh, the, the social work because the fact that uh, I came from an IT background, uh, my, uh, my uh, uh, professional career uh, and my uh, education was in information technology, but more recently uh, or last 20 years or 20, uh, 20 plus years now, I have been involved in the social work. So it's a continuous learning process for me. And um, and I every time I talk to my team, I learn something new. So and uh, and uh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Karina. I'm Lalit Sharma. By training, I'm a civil engineer, uh, spending around 20 years in construction industry for infrastructure development. I started working on water management, and for last 20. 22 years, I am working with Segal Foundation on water management issues, and particularly on developing innovative solutions for water crisis or water quality I'm working on. Wow, that's really amazing. And I'm so grateful that I'm able to speak with you um, about you know, the different technological innovations that the Segal Foundation has been working on. To start off, can you speak about, you know, the work that the Segal Foundation does and also how it was formed, uh, why it was formed? Okay, I'll, I, if you don't mind, I will start it out. We'll start out with that. And Lalit, please fill in if I miss something along the way. Uh, Segal Foundation is established basically to make an impact, positive impact in the lives of rural communities. Now, when we look at the rural communities, their mainstay in the rural areas is agriculture. And, um, and also our background and uh, from our family perspective, we also came from an agriculture background where Dr. Suri Segal is a renowned agriculture scientist, scientist who's the founder, him and his wife, Edda, are the founders of the Segal Foundation. So we said we need to make an impact in the lives of the poor people and get them out of poverty is to uh, improve their agriculture practices, except especially with the very poor, the poor um, villagers in the in the com in the communities. So we our main main objective was to create um, positive impact in the lives of the rural communities of farming community. 
Now, when you talk about agriculture, you cannot talk. I mean, we, of course, as I say, we bring a lot of agriculture practices, very sustainable agriculture practices. We don't um, go into organic and those, are, but we walk, uh, work with the farmers on showing them what impact a sustainable agriculture can make. Uh, when you talk about agriculture, you cannot talk agriculture and not talk about water because water is extremely, extremely important aspect of um, without, without water, there's no agriculture. It's very well known. So we also started, work, started working on the water management perspective. So water has to be completely, I mean, there's water availability at the farm level. There has to be water availability at the village level. There has to be water availability at a community level. So there's a, Lalit will talk a little bit more about that perspective, but we said we need to make sure we make it, um, make an impact uh, at water availability as close to the farming, as close to the villagers, especially the women, and as close as a community for the other uh, needs of the community is available in, in the in the. Then we talk about sustainability. We we said whatever we do has to be sustained effectively, and we walk we work with the community as a community mobilization. And computer, it's not again going out and doing things, but it's working with the community and making sure they understand how the work is being carried out, and not just uh, going and doing and walking away because that's not sustainable solutions. So we uh, we promote sustainable solutions for agriculture, sustainable solutions for water. And then we make sure the community involvement is top of the line. Now, we one of the cross-cutting themes for the organization is women empowerment. We make sure that uh, everything we do, we do at the farm, the women are considered as the top of the top of the. How can we make impact in this woman's life? Um, in 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 the, when they're working at the farm level, farmer, women farmers or labor farmers, we make we look at that perspective. We also look. And the biggest impact for water is on the women. And so we, in the community, if the water is not available, if they have to spend half a day to go to stretch, um, fetch water for the family, there's, they have very little time to take care of other things or take care of themselves. So we make sure we work in the community, work with the women so the water is available in the villages itself. Now, when we talk about women empowerment, we can't just say at the adulthood that the women are empowered. Women's life, I mean, girls uh, going to the schools, that's where the whole process has to begin. So when we start looking at the how the young girls go to the school and why they drop out, why they are not remaining in the schools. So we said that's where the women empowerment actually begins. Mm -hmm. So we started working. With, and then and when we looked at this, the girls are sent to a very, very uh, uh, poor or backward or the no facilities in the schools, those type of schools. Mm -hmm. So we said this, that's, that's, that's the main reason why the girl child actually drops out or doesn't even enroll in it. Now, anybody who, any families, I mean, um, any family who has a little bit of money, they will send their boy to the uh, private school, but girl is still sent to the government schools where there's no water, no toilet facility, no digital literacy. There's, uh, and the poor conditions of the schools. 
So we said we need to start at that level, bring all, uh, all our programs and everything at that particular level. So the empowerment starts from the very beginning and not just at the later stage in life. So we started working on the school, uh, government schools, basically enhancing their schools, uh, making sure Again, there's a water availability for the children, and Lalit will talk a little bit more about how we make sure we harvest all the water, store all the water, clean the water, and provide pure drinking water in those schools. We make sure there's a plenty of toilets, toilets, and clean toilets with the water and everything is available in the school so the so the girls especially for the girl child you know that uh, that they're uh, they're comfortable in the school we build these schools to beautify the schools with the uh, plantations and the playgrounds and the cooking facilities and so all of a sudden you have this and created an environment which is fantastic for the children and fantastic fantastic for the, the so they can stay come to school and they stay in school the enrollment has gone up and the um, and the retention retention in the school is gone up so we started working quite a bit on the schools uh, from from the very very beginning and i think lalit will talk a little bit more about the climate change as well how do we address climate because that's another one of our cross cutting theme uh, is that women empowerment uh, climate change these are the some of the things that we keep in mind when we implement any project in the villages now we um, for the foundation uh, we uh, make sure that uh, complete baseline and the uh, uh, and the monitoring and evaluation and impact impact is extremely important because you do it but what is what impact have you made and studying and measuring the impact is a very very important for us and making changes along the way if we need to make changes we make the changes to make sure that things um, uh, are impactful and not just done something one time and and walk away from this mm -hmm. so i think those are that's the that's the Suri and Eda um, are the founders of the Sego Foundation. Uh, we have been uh, now working in the villages for now 23 years. We just celebrated 23rd anniversary. Uh, we are in, uh, in 11 states uh, across India. And we uh, work with almost three and a half million people day in, day out uh, in, in these villages. And, um, and, and we continue to grow as, and make an impact. And that's that's our little introduction. Uh, I would say only one thing: the mantra of Sagal Foundation is empowerment, and mm -hmm. uh, the basic thing we are doing is empowering the people. Right. And we are trying to empower them to a level so that they can take charge of their development on their own. Uh, they don't need Sagal Foundation or anyone else once they achieve this empowerment. And uh, for that, we are working in all the sectors we are doing. And uh, our emphasis is on that uh, uh, we will work only when people is working. We will just support them. They are working on and uh, we are supporting them. We mm -hmm. don't ever say we are working for you. No, we are working with them they are the people who are working for their number. And I think it's so amazing how the Sego Foundation, you know, really emphasizes this idea of autonomy and working for yourself to improve your own conditions. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the work that the foundation does for women empowerment, because I think a lot of people don't really realize that 
when people are trying to get the water in these, you know, rural regions, it's the women and children that have to travel miles and miles, hours and hours to -hmm. get this water that is not even necessarily clean. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead of working, going to school or, you know, even at a very basic level, caring for their families and caring for themselves, they're not even able to do that because they have to go and fetch water for the family. I think that, you know, this this perspective is often neglected. And so it's super important that, you know, we start looking at the root of this issue, looking at the very, very fundamental underlying issues of this crisis and kind of work from there. And I think that's a super, super interesting point. And I just want to further dig deeper into the water crisis. And, you know, you mentioned how this lack of access affects so many people. So how exactly does it affect these people? You talked about how, you know, the Sego Foundation initially started to improve, you know, the agricultural sector. So could you uh, talk about more how water plays a role in this and how it plays a role in the daily lives of people? So I generally say water is a function of space and time. Though, uh, when this earth was formed, there was no water on this planet, uh, this earth. And uh, this water came through a meteorite on this earth. And then the environment on the earth protected it as an envelope. So whatever water is there, it will remain there. But the problem is space and time. Where we need, is it available there or not? What happens uh, with the population growth and the lifestyle change clubbed with the technology development? The water withdrawal has been increasing a lot because earlier, uh, if you say about, uh, say around 40, 50 years back, there was no facility of pumping water, particularly in uh, agriculture in India. Uh, it was all manually drawn water used for irrigation or used. Most of the agriculture was rain fed. When we started drawing water through pumps, electrical pumps came in, and then the uh, Green Revolution came in. With that, a lot of uh, water withdrawal was taking place. And groundwater is the main source of water. Uh, so, People dependent on groundwater is starting withdrawing more and more water to get more and more yield of the crop. And unfortunately, at that time, it was not thought through that uh, we need to replenish that groundwater also. At the same time, the people have started focusing or concentrating in certain pockets. And because of that, the groundwater flows started changing. So earlier, uh, suppose, uh, because withdrawal was not much, it was all in equilibrium. And when withdrawal is high, then surrounding water is started gushing to this area. And because of that underground movement of water disturbed the equilibrium. The quality of water in certain pockets was not good enough. So that also started encroaching. And in whole game plan, what happened? That uh, the depletion 
as well as the subsurface flow has deteriorated the, the quality of water, has depleted the groundwater. And once the groundwater depletes, then the unsaturated zone, the depth of unsaturated zone keep increasing. And because of that, the recharging also decreases. And when on top of it, climate change is taking place, because of that, what's happening, the intensity of rainfall increased a lot, whereas the duration of rainfall has decreased. Almost uh, the quantity of rainfall is the same. But because of intense events of the rainfall, what's happening, a lot of water is coming at one point of time and management system is not that much. As a result, it all flows down in drains and rivers and end up into the sea. Uh, when Sagal Foundation started its work, uh, we started from semi-arid regions. And semi-arid regions where uh, the rainfall is uh, hardly 450 millimeters, soils are sandy. And the main problem was that uh, most of the area's salinity was high. And because of that, we saw how women and uh, girl child were traveling a lot to fetch water. And because of that, uh, health issues were there. Their most of the productive time was wasted in fetching the water. At the same time, because of uh, non-availability of good water, agriculture choices were very less. So they were doing only rain-fed agriculture. At the same time, the economy, because of non-availability of water, was totally in very bad shape. Because they have the only uh, two things to uh, earn their livelihood. One is agriculture, other is uh, animal husbandry. But because of uh, scarcity of water, both of these were not productive well. So that was the situation. And you can see once economy is affected, health is affected, social effect, uh, aspects are all affected. And uh, even the attitudinal problems were there because people developed an attitude, sort of resigned attitude that there is no hope for the life. In that situation, Sagal Foundation entered in those areas. And with our work, people started seeing the hope. So you can see now the impact of water scarcity, how deep it is. And it's so interesting to note that it's not just like a particular region uh, because of their weather, because of their climate that this water crisis is caused. It's because of the lack of infrastructure, the lack of governmental planning, ages and ages of human impact that has caused climate change. And then the water crisis causes so many things. It causes so much pain and suffering for the people, economic downfall, um, deterioration of health. So there's so many causes and there's so many effects. And because of that, we really, really struggle as a community and as a global community at large. So 
Now, I'm sure that through studying the world water crisis, the foundation has also realized that it's a very multifaceted crisis. Like there's so many aspects to this issue. Um, And this means that the foundation also has to view this global issue through a very unconventional lens with making sure that they keep these various perspectives, these various, you know, layers in mind. How exactly do you think innovation and technology plays a role in solving these major issues, especially the world water crisis? Because again, we really have to view this issue through a very innovative lens to ensure that, you know, we're covering all bases. How exactly does the Sago Foundation leverage this idea of innovation and technology in order to implement the change within these rural communities in India, where so many times, you know, there's these systems that are so deeply rooted Um, in these regions that it's very hard to change certain ways of living, certain ideologies. Yeah. Let me let me just say very high level on the innovation. Uh, Lalit will talk a little bit more in detail, but the in what we from the very beginning we said we need to be innovation has to be bottom up. It cannot be top down because we need to understand the community. We need to understand what their needs are. We need to understand what facilities are available for them uh you know so for example is there electricity is there a you know just basic things are needed available or not and then i think the innovation so it has we always in everything we have done we always look at how it is bottom-up approach instead of coming up. You know, many times scientists will sit in an office room and come up with an idea to, and they have a t- fantastic things. Um, when you go to the rural communities, they're not applicable. So I think that's one thing Lalit and his team has always done, the studied the, I'm, I'm talking much higher level, he will talk more on the details, study the communities first then developing technologies, how can those technologies be, be innovation and technology can be designed and developed to be applied to those communities. So I just wanted to bring that before Lalit gets uh, more detailed. Thank into Lalit. Thank you, Jack. So, uh, uh, as you said, uh, water management uh, really it was the issue and uh, we need to address that. When we started working, we sat with the people and tried to understand the situation. And uh, they told us the clear picture, what they are facing and uh, what traditional knowledge they had, they shared that also. And then we realized water management uh, is not only about uh, the availability of water, but also we need to work on the demand side also. So supply side and demand side, both the sides has to be worked upon. As far as the supply side is concerned, increasing the water availability. So uh, rainwater is the ultimate source of water. And uh, through that, we can recharge the groundwater. We started uh, talking to the people. One solution cannot fit in all the situations. So, Every project is different conditions. So every site has to be considered and adapt the solutions uh, suitable to the local conditions. So our uh, mantra to this was, whatever solution we work out, we work out with the community. First, 
we listen to them what are the problems then in the light of the modern science we tell them what could be the reasons of this that way a sensitization of communities was taking place there were many issues they were not even thinking of but uh, because of this they started thinking in different terms now they are uh, started realizing that uh, it's not only that we keep drawing water we need to feed back the ground with the water to recharge our aquifers then when we started working with the communities they will they know each and every inch of their terrain they know very well which location is suitable for recharging where the water flows and how we can trap that so our mantra was catch the rain where it falls so we should not let it flow down long distances and as early as possible we should try to collect it and then recharge into the ground this was the situation in the semi arid regions once we got good experience of said uh, this type of terrain then we starting to uh, going to other areas also but uh, one thing we realized that uh, the solutions we are trying to develop need to be socially accepted technically viable and also the low cost affordability is the major issue because we also have limited resources and within those limited resources we want to maximize the output we can take out of it so that uh, we try to work on the most uh, economic solutions and uh, uh, we develop innovations such that uh, uh, the traditional structures uh, which were uh, being constructed our uh, structures was at least 30% uh, more economic than the traditional structures at the same time uh, the time required for construction of such structures was also much less than uh, traditionally so this uh, innovation uh, helped us a lot because uh, whatever structure we make community is also participating in that or contributing mm-hmm. uh, and not only in cash uh, they also contributed in form of labor and many a times uh, even a poor family they wanted to contribute but they did not have ready cash or they were not uh, even few families they said uh, they were old enough uh, they were not able to work even uh, i remember uh, two three instances when a family gave us a goat and they said you sell off this goat and this is my contribution but i want to contribute in this structure so that kind of feelings were taking us ahead and uh, these things brought the sustainability because everyone was feeling that it's my work once the people 
started taking ownership, then uh, sustainability is not a big issue then. And this really does reiterate this idea of a community-based approach, ensuring that each and every entity, each and every person is involved, because through that, it really brings about this feeling of a unitedness and also makes them more accountable, holds them accountable to ensure that they are, you know, continuously uh, making sure that they are part of the sustainable solution. And I think it's really interesting to note that it's really important that we do conduct all these different case studies of each and every region because people on a daily basis may not realize that, you know, there have to be different solutions that are applied to different areas and regions. And there are so many different factors that have to be taken into account when devising these different solutions. And there isn't one clear cut, easy solution to this issue. Because again, as I mentioned prior, there are so many causes and there's so many effects um, and there's so many different situations that each and every village, each and every region, each and every person is in whenever uh, they are in this type of situation. And I just wanted, you know, to further ask, what are these different um, water management systems that the Seiko Foundation has worked on? What types of, you know, systems have been put in place into these regions at a very high level that have helped these villages to, you know, start working on their water conservation and management systems? So the approach we adopted uh, was a ridge-to-valley approach. Mm -hmm. So uh, from where the water starts flowing down, uh, we start from there. Like uh, on the upper portions, uh, we worked on control trenches, control bunds. And uh, then as uh, it comes down and there the gradient is high, in those areas, erosion uh, takes place because of high speed of water. So in those areas, we started working through gabion structures. Basically, these are loose stone structures. And this purpose of this is just let the water slow down so that uh, further erosion does not take place. And if it has eroded in the upper streams, so, uh, and it's bringing the silt. So let the silt settle down. And that way, uh, slower water goes into uh, the down reaches and there the gradient comes little down. And uh, in low gradient areas, we started working on check dams. And uh, here the purpose was impound the water for recharging the groundwater. So once the water is collected, then we, uh, for efficient recharging, we uh, created artificial shaft uh, through which directly uh, this water goes uh, into the ground aquifer. So uh, this is one set of thing. Then there are traditional ponds in the villages. So what we tried to do, uh, we cleared the catchment area, we cleared the tributaries of these ponds so that uh, water reaches to them. Because uh, these ponds were silted up, age old, these are age old ponds and a lot of silting were taking place. So we uh, desilted those ponds. Now the capacity of these ponds increases many fold. And that way, a lot of water 
is getting stored. And uh, these ponds are very efficient systems in terms of water management because the same water is used again and again. Recycling takes place. And there also what we try to do that uh, up to certain level, according to the need of the people, uh, up to certain level water will be stored. And if uh, water goes up, then it is diverted into a recharge well, so that uh, groundwater efficiently recharged. Although uh, these ponds also recharges itself, but uh, that recharging is very slow. So uh, we try to harvest each and every drop. And uh, many villages, uh, our slogan was zero runoff village. Any water, any rainwater coming into this village should not go out. So whatever water we rain we receive in this village should be harvested within this village. Then in the agriculture fields, uh, we worked with the farmers on labeling the fields. Uh, there is a term laser labeling. So once the whole the field is leveled, then uh, every part of the uh, field is getting the same water. That way, agriculture uh, productivity and the crop quality is the same and uh, much better. At the same time, water requirement of the field goes down. And moreover, rainwater harvesting within the field is much better than earlier. So these kind of things uh, we were working on. Uh, there are many fields where uh, we uh, developed farm ponds. So the field water comes in a corner where a small uh, tank is there. So water gets collected and it serves for critical irrigation, particularly in horticulture part, it is very much required. Lot of plantation uh, we did mm. uh, because of the plantation, a microclimate change takes place. At the same time, the soil is also conserved. Erosion does not take place because the, the roots of these trees keep the soil intact, so that the top fertile soil is not eroded further. Yeah, you, you you touched up a little bit on the zero runoff village, uh, zero yeah. runoff villages, and basically, again, the concept is to uh, store the water as uh, uh, as wherever it falls. I think that's yeah. Lalit and his team had come up uh, the work. Uh, I think this this got some awards as well. A couple of innovations that you worked on that got uh, very well recognized worldwide. One was the uh, three-tier water storage tanks. And you touched up on that a house level, community sure. level, village level. So that's making sure there's no water runoff. Is it? And the second innovation was the uh, uh, building uh, groundwater in saline zones because that's uh, uh, we have a, quite an issue uh, in uh, what, what is called inland salinity. And uh, you want to touch up on those a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. So particularly in the areas where uh, groundwater is saline, and uh, we 
were trying to develop a solution so that people don't need to walk miles and miles to fetch water. What we did, uh, we created tank within the household. And this was 20,000 liter tank. So this tank was uh, harvesting the rainwater from the roof. And the overflow of this tank was going into a uh, cluster tank. Uh, this cluster tank was around 100,000 liter capacity, say around 50 households are connected to this tank. And then there are uh, four or five cluster tanks in a village. The outflow of uh, these tanks was going into a village tank that was 300,000 liter capacity. So idea was they, uh, each household has got this tank uh, of 20,000 liter. So their drinking and cooking requirements are met there itself within the household. And once this water is exhausted, they can come to cluster tank. They can take drinking and cooking water from there. And this uh, 300,000 liter capacity tank was meant for other domestic purposes. And uh, other than drinking and cooking, they can take water from there. Now, uh, other innovation, what we did in Saline villages, uh, we uh, innovated a system of recharging in such a way that uh, when we recharge water into the aquifer directly, it forms its own pocket. It does not get mixed with the existing saline groundwater. So uh, because of hydrostatic pressure, water goes down into the aquifer and the recharge well was much lower than the, around five to six feet, much lower than uh, this uh, groundwater table. That way, it was take, uh, uh, pushing away the existing saline groundwater and uh, there it was forming its own pocket. So whatever water we harvest into this 85 to 90%, we can withdraw as a fresh water. So it does not get mixed with the uh, saline groundwater. So this was uh, another innovation which was recognized by UN itself. And uh, when SDG were signed, uh, they conducted a solution summit and they invited Sagal Foundation to make presentation of this technology there. So uh, yeah. thank you, Jay, reminding yeah, me. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, you know, this conversation can go on and on because he's working on uh, arsenic reduction. He's working on um, uh, drinking water on the side of the cleaning the drinking water, taking care of biological uh, contamination, as well as he's also working on the decreasing the fluorides as well. So there's so much going on. So I, we don't want to take up all the time in these, these discussions, but I think we can continue with the other um, discussions that you have. No, definitely. And it's so interesting to see how, you know, all these systems are so interconnected and it's like a very, very much like a web of how the water flows. And I think that's very, very interesting. And so upon doing some research, I also learned about, you know, the very low cost and interesting um, solution that the Segal Foundation 
uh, worked on, and that was the gel gulp and the mati gulp filters. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on these two uh, filters and how exactly they've been implemented in these certain affected regions. And also if you could walk us through the pr entire process of how these filters were innovated and how they even came to be. Because uh, I found it so interesting how, you know, these filters, something we think is so basic, but so impactful, um, and how they're so effective at doing, you know, the certain specified job they're supposed to do. Sure. Uh, so, you know, uh, WHO identified three priority areas, particularly in drinking water. One is microbial contamination. Second is arsenic. And third is the fluoride. When we were working with the people and found that uh, water quality they were consuming is not good and microbial contamination is everywhere. And it is uh, because of uh, open composting, open defecation, and uh, many unhygienic uh, insanitation conditions. So we were looking for some sustainable solutions. And uh, biosand filter we came across was a sustainable solution, low cost. But the problem of this biosand filter was that it was not suitable for uh, rural Indian conditions. So uh, though we worked around uh, three, four years on this, and uh, it, then we realized uh, it is not good for our conditions. So we innovated it further. Uh, first of all, traditional biosand filter was made in cement concrete precast uh, shell, which was very heavy, around 75, uh, 75 kilos of weight. And uh, transporting that to remote villages was very difficult. So we uh, wanted to change this uh, material. And we developed ultimately after experimenting with many materials. Finally, we zeroed in stainless steel, and we created this model in stainless steel. And it was empty shell, weighing only four and a half kg instead of seventy-five kg. So now it was very easy to take to any remote corner, even in hilly areas. We could transport it very well. At the same time, the traditional uh, biosand filter removed uh, microbial contamination only up to 98.5%, whereas uh, we wanted uh, to 100%. So what we did, we integrated the germicidal properties of copper into this filter. And uh, just uh, addition of uh, say one fourth of a dollar cost uh, uh, copper foil, uh, we were able to do so. Now, this filter was able to eliminate uh, microbial contamination, iron, turbidity, but still uh, uh, arsenic and fluoride were the issue. So then we integrated a very robust technology for arsenic removal is zero valent iron technology. So uh, basically, this is just uh, mild steel shreddings, and we put it uh, in a filter, and that produces uh, 
hydrous oxide of iron which adsorbs the arsenic so uh, we integrated this uh, into the uh, biocent filter we named it at jalkan and then the issue was uh, the adsorbed uh, arsenic will produce some sludge how to dispose that sludge so uh, we had to study whether it is environmentally safe or not so for that uh, we conducted a study in collaboration with iit kanpur and uh, we found that it was safe to dispose so that way that filter worked well and uh, because it's a one time investment it does not have any recurring cost once it is installed it is lifetime security for pathogens for turbidity iron arsenic Mm -hmm. uh but the issue was uh, it was costing around 3500 rupees initially department of science and technology government of india supported us to uh, subsidize these filters uh, and uh, we worked with that subsidy and uh, that way almost 1000 rupees was subsidized by the government and 2500 these uh, households contributed for this but still poorest of poor were not able to afford because they did not have that much ready cash so then we thought why not to come come up with some very cheap solution and uh, with that uh, thinking we started working on matical it's a basically uh, terracotta filter Uh, made of clay and some combustible material and when this uh, molded uh, pot uh, was uh, fired then the combustible material uh, at uh, around 450 to 500 degrees celsius uh, temperature uh, that gasifies and once it gasifies it the gas escapes from the body and uh, it forms micro channels and micro channels are so micro that uh, uh, even bigger size of bacteria cannot pass through still the virus and uh, tiny bacteria were issue so for that uh, silver impregnation process takes place uh, in this body uh, so we do silver impregnation in that the virus and all kind of uh, these uh, pathogens are taken care so that way uh, now uh, this filter cost uh, around 600 uh, rupees just uh, a filter for a family and it is very affordable and the best part of this filter was that uh, every village has got a traditional potter families and those potters were losing context because there was no demand of clay pots so they also got uh, livelihood so we are producing these filters through potter families locally and uh, now we are working on adapting these filters for arsenic uh, removal also so same zero valent iron technology we are trying to integrate into that 
and uh, up to 500 ppb of level of arsenic uh, we have successfully removed and uh, we are experimenting for further uh, concentrations still uh, the fluoride uh, remains an issue so for that uh, because uh, presently the technology being uh, adopted or being promoted is the activated alumina technology which is a very risky technology because aluminium leaching takes place uh, in this technology which is not good for health but uh, because of this uh, we never promoted this technology and we thought uh, we should develop some risk-free technology so we are uh, working on developing this at lab scale it has uh, succeeded and now we are uh, almost ready to start field trials uh, maybe in a couple of months uh, we are going to start field trials of this technology and which is a very simple technology uh, one of the waste material of mines will be used to absorb the fluoride so again very simple very low cost technology and the best part is it can be clubbed with any of these filters jalkalp or vertical that's really really interesting and it's so interesting to see like the iterative processes how you and just a simple engineering design process how you have to think of a solution see what works what doesn't and then go back and keep improving it and you know i find that process so interesting because it really requires you to employ you know different problem solving methods and keep on trying to innovate and improve a certain product and i i just really really love this idea of how the Segal foundation really uses emerging technologies but also at a very um, affordable and a very basic thought process. I would like to add one thing. How mm -hmm. this uh, fluoride uh, innovation or technology came into mind. In fact, uh, I was studying the mechanism of uh, fluorosis, how fluoride goes into the body and impact uh, 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 the health. And I found that uh, the fluoride acts with the uh, calcium which creates the problem. Okay. Then I thought if it can react with the calcium within our body, why can't we get it reacted outside our body and immobilize it? Mm -hmm. So that was the basis of this technology we are working on. Yeah, it's continuous, it's continuous improvement, continuous evolve, you know, from the uh, original models to, uh, you've seen in most of the cases, uh, going from original model and continued refinement, 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 until it's very applicable to the uh, rural communities. So it takes, it, 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 innovation is not overnight. It takes, uh, yeah. it takes time, it takes uh, process and, and uh, if it cannot be deployed effectively, it's, it's <laughs> it has no meaning. So, yeah. And follow-up question on this is, how do you ensure that these rural communities are being kept accountable and that they're, you know, actually using these filters um, and making sure that they're using these new methods as opposed to going back to their older methods and uh, going back to how they used to live prior and not wanting, you know, change, not wanting to change their lifestyle for these new developments. Uh, promoting these technologies, what's happening uh, 
Sagal Foundation, if it itself promoted, uh, we can do it in limited area. So mm -hmm. Sagal Foundation adopted uh, a approach where we are building capacities of uh, other organizations, other uh, practitioners, and give them these technologies. Mm -hmm. And they are taking it further. Right. So uh, uh, like uh, this Jalkal, uh, Segal Foundation installed around 3,500 filters itself. But around 20,000 filters has been installed by other organizations and entrepreneurs. So that way, uh, Segal Foundation is doing a role of capacity building other grassroots organizations to bring the impact at large scale. Yeah, that's uh, just to add to that, Lalita, I think the um, one of the things that we do is, uh, as, as has been mentioned many times, is that community involvement is extremely important. So it's not that we, again, go back to the lab and sit in the lab and develop this. It worked hand in hand with the community uh, to develop these. So it's a sense of belonging for the community that it is mine. And the other thing that's uh, why replication and why they continue to use it, I think that's a very good question. You know, when they see they, they, the rural, uh, as I said, the financial situation is poor for them. And uh, when they see that deploying this type of uh, these, uh, these water filters, their health bills, which you know, the waterborne diseases is one of the biggest cause uh, for uh, the, the health issues in, in the country. And when they see that their health is improving, they're getting clean drinking water, they have no, you know, and it automatically makes them use that facility more. So I think the, 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 the end result is basically the benefit the community gets, even though they have to spend this very minimal amount, 600, 700 rupees, but the amount of money they save in their health bills or health uh, issues is, is multifold from that. And it is, it is and the, the technology that Lalit has built, it's sustainable in the sense that it doesn't require a lot of filter changing, a lot of this. It's it's a self-maintaining type of technology that, that they see. So it's, it's a, you install it once time or once in a while, they will have to do a little bit of a, I think, cleaning type of work. But other than that, it's, nothing is required. No more filters, no more new things yeah. that the one has to, membranes and this and that. Everything is very well thought through and built, built up. So so I think, the again, going answering your question, the community sees the benefit in, even in when we build these uh, water structures or, or uh, recharge wells, when they see all of a sudden they got water in their wells and they see the water in the fields, they have their crops are improving, then what is the, why shouldn't we take care of these structures? I think that's the, that is the main thing. And, and then having the community involvement right from the very beginning it is it is extremely extremely important uh, for sustainability of it. So that's that's how that's how we go about that. Yeah, and I think that you know that's the best way to even approach things like this. Mm. So my final question uh, before we end this session is: as we leave the audience with all this information, all these different methods that the Segal Foundation is employing, I wanted to ask: what change do you think is needed to solve the world's water crisis? 
And also as representatives of the Seagull Foundation, how do you think people, um, normal people on a daily basis can start devising such solutions to these major issues through technology and through technological development? How can they leverage their setting, their situation, their resources to start ideating and maybe develop some sort of solution to these issues? Yeah, do you want to address that? How do you address the world world water crisis? You know, that's a, a you know, it's a, with the climate change. There's a, a many places are getting huge amount of water. Many places are getting no little, very little water. This is happening, right? I mean, it's not unique to India, but it is very much happening in the United States. Also, we our West Coast has uh, will run out of water. You know, and many you have seen over the last um, uh, few years, many cities can got into the danger of running out of water. So uh, the first of all, I think there is a need of sensitization to a level of attitudinal change that everyone is start thinking where I can save water. Once we start saving and the demand side, management will take. At the same time, if we look at the supply side, everyone has to think where water is flowing, let it go down into the ground. There are many possibilities, very cheap possibilities that we can recharge the aquifer. Like uh, there are many abandoned wells, many bore wells which can be recharged very well because these are already very well connected with the aquifer system. Mm -hmm. So wherever we can save, we should save. And wherever there is a possibility of recharging the groundwater, we should recharge that. And it should happen everywhere. Then only we can come over it. And uh, plantation is uh, very much required everywhere. Uh, that can fight the climate change very effectively. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's absolutely correct. Awareness uh, has to be created. And uh, again, I think many times the nonprofit world uh, thinks that technology is a proprietary technologies, you know, innovations and technologies more proprietary. And, and this, which, which we don't, uh, we, we at the Sega Foundation consider ourselves more of an open source type of an organization that we put out these technologies out there. Uh, it's on our websites, all the information that one needs. Uh, take what you want to take and use it uh, in anywhere. And they, these are applicable. The, again, this is not rocket science, but it is applicable everywhere. Uh, wherever you take it, Africa, you take it anywhere. It, it, these are very applicable technologies. And of course, we also like people to give us a feedback, give us more information, give us, you know, so that's what, that's what I call an operation, add to it so that we can even further enhance it to make it more. And I think if uh, the technology um, has to be, the ultimate goal is to get in the hands of the people who needs it the most and innovation and technologies. And, and if it sits at uh, some shelf in MIT or some shelf in some uh, somebody's uh, hands, it has no meaning whatsoever. This, I would say, time waste. And uh, so I think it's it's the um, it's the key 
aspect is how do you join hands? I know that, uh, for example, you take a country like Israel, who has done tremendous amount of, of work on water. And um, uh, Lalit has been very much in touch with many various scientists there. How do we can carry, bring those technologies to water-stricken areas in India? And that's, that's what the key game, name of the game will be. How do you bring um, water savings technologies to irrigation purposes? And um, I mean, day by day, more technologies are coming. That Yesterday I learned um, that we have uh, more technologies on with the drone irrigation, or drone irrigation or drone uh, fertilization, actually, which helps you save so much water and minimal fertilization used for because it's a very targeted and to the plant by plant. So these are the type of things that, that will evolve uh, to help us um, with the water conservation uh, issues as we, as we move forward. And I think it's so important to understand that, you know, people who are pursuing their interests through their respective professions, they can utilize their skills, whatever they have learned to aid in this movement and help these unprivileged folks, you know, around the world. So I just want to thank you so much for um, coming on this episode of One Drop at a Time. And it was really interesting and insightful to be able to understand how the Sago Foundation has recruited professionals people who are extremely skilled at what they do in their respective fields in order to innovate and create these systems and devices for social good. Um, and I think that's, you know, the very basis of human society at large. Um, mm. And there's no doubt that all individuals, regardless of where they come from and who they are, they have the power to take advantage of their expertise and skills in order to help these marginalized communities globally. So yes, thank you so much for coming on to this episode um, and for giving all this very important and imperative information for our audience. Thank you, Karina. Fantastic and uh, best, of, best of luck. Mm -hmm.